broadcasting on the Drug Truth Network. This is Cultural Baggage. It's not only inhumane, it is really fundamentally un-American. My name is Dean Becker. I don't condone or encourage the use of any drugs, legal or illegal. I report the unvarnished truth about the pharmaceutical, banking, prison, and judicial nightmare that feeds on eternal drug war. Hello, my friends. Welcome to this edition of Cultural Baggage. I'm glad you could be with us. Our uh, guest for this evening will be Dr. Stanton Peel. He's authored a great new book. We'll get into that here in a minute. I want to read just a little bit of this uh, uh, summary, if you will, of the book. The temptation to become an addict is around every corner. We live in a world rife with opportunities for addictive behavior, from alcohol and prescription drug abuse to Internet addictions like gambling and pornography. While we all may remember messages to just say no for many kids and adolescents that's not enough those after-school specials and mandatory dare assemblies don't always do the job and with each year that passes more and more teens and kids are becoming addicted perhaps it's time to admit that the supposed tried and true methods of preventing addiction aren't working and with that i want to bring in our guest dr stanton peel author of the great new book addiction proof your child hello dr peel Hi, that sounds very exciting, that thing you read. I'm, I'm looking forward to learning more about it. <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, it, those who uh, have been with us here on the Drug Truth Network for a while may remember we had the doctor in a couple of years back with his uh, other book, Seven Ways to Beat Addiction. And I, I want to tell you, Seven sir. Tools to Beat Addiction. You made the same mistake the last time you referred to it. <laughs> yes, sir. Seven Tools to we Beat Addiction. You've got to learn from our mistakes. Look, go on. Okay. Uh, yes, sir. And, and I. I, I want to, uh, first off, to recommend this book. It is something that I think every family with children uh, needs to look into, to, to take care of their children, to give them better options, perhaps. Uh, Dr. Peel, if you would, uh, give us uh, kind of an insight. What, what led you to write this book? <clears throat> well, when you talk about the family uh, being a bastion, uh, against addiction, it makes me sound almost conservative. It's like, uh, you know, parents for a drug-free America. Parents do make a difference. And ironically, a lot of information we get plays up against that. I mean, for example, uh, there was a bestseller some years ago that emphasized that parents really don't have any impact on how their children develop. Either it's genes, the way they're born on the one hand, or peers or the social current that makes a difference and really the national institute on drug abuse is engaged in an enterprise where they sort of say well drugs just take over your kids it's nothing you can do about that or it's a genetic predisposition to become addicted i reject all that there will always be the necessity of parenting there's nothing more important in determining how children come out in regards to everything, but in this case, I'm talking about addiction, uh, families have a tremendous role to play. So in a way, I don't know, I'm, I'm kind of going against a lot of things that we hear, but maybe you might think in a conservative direction. But coming at the other end, the idea that you can raise a kid who's going to avoid 
every option to be addicted is such a strange fantasy, but it's one that, you know, people besides Nancy Reagan share. Well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to tell the kids never to take drugs, okay? In fact, more than half of high school seniors have already violated that recommendation. But beyond that, as I describe in Addiction Proves Your Child, the fastest growing drugs of abuse right now are prescription medications, which kids take without prescriptions. One in five adolescents has used a painkiller recreationally. One in ten has used a ADHD-type drug. And, of course, kids are being prescribed astronomically greater amounts of uh, new drugs for new conditions. There was just a 40-fold increase in the diagnosis in the last decade of uh, bipolar, which is treated with lithium. Antidepressant use has grown colossally. Uh, you know, Concerta and Adderall for treating ADHD. So they're going to be, and those drugs are all highly powerful substances. So just in the drug category, it's impossible to raise a child, virtually impossible to raise a child who's not exposed to drugs. I mean, by the time you're 21, by the time you're 20, 90% of high school, of uh, Americans have consumed alcohol. And in case you haven't been paying attention, that's illegal underage drinking. You're not allowed to drink in the United States until you're 21. So that's a far larger number than use illicit drugs. And they tend to drink in binges, many young people. Half of 21-year-olds have binge drunk in the last month. So then there's alcohol. And we haven't even gotten into all the fancy stuff, like gambling. And, the, you know, uh, the AMA all came within a hair's breadth of... Uh, classifying video games as addictive but that's just one of a million things iPods and uh, internet communications and cell phones and pornography there's a million ways to become addicted uh, we're just coming to grips with that the only solution to that world out there is to create strong, independent children that you have confidence can resist addiction. There's no alternative. I, I, I find it uh, uh, rather inspiring. Uh, you you uh, talk about the... I don't know if inspiring is the word, but the, the failure of the ONDCP and their ads to sway children that we've wasted uh, tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars on these ads that most drug users just laugh at. And, and yet we, we don't address the true nature of the problem in that they don't get a real education about what these drugs are, what they can do, maybe a, a proper way to make use of them. It's all just say no, as Nancy Reagan said. Well, I do have, I do have a chapter on drug prevention programs. I mean, I'm not digging new ground when I say that DARE has been shown repeatedly not to be particularly effective. And the reason for that is because any top-down program where the goal is to lecture people about things that, in fact, kids know more about than the teachers. I mean, are kids more familiar with illicit drug use and underage drinking, or are police sergeants more familiar with it? 
And anytime you don't have enough respect for your audience to say, tell me what you know and what you think, then you're not going to educate them. And that's the problem we have right now in terms of drug education. It's unrealistic, it's disrespectful, and it doesn't arm kids with real skills that they need to face the world that they're going to confront. Well, oftentimes the, uh, I, I want to read a quick quote from you. Uh, would you get financial advice from someone who went bankrupt? Uh, that's uh, from Ethan Nadelman. And then the, the, I guess the, the point is we get the, the, I don't know, the sob stories from those who've had troubles with drugs. They come before the school or an assembly and, and uh, try to convince kids not to do drugs. But they're the ones who had the problems. You talk about the fact that many people are able to use these drugs recreationally, moderately, and not have any of those problems that these uh, others, uh, you know... Well, it is funny. We like to hear in drug education from people who either claim they've never had drugs, like those stair sergeants who may or may not be telling the truth, or people who failed to deal with them. That's our idea of good education, because really we're working on the old temperance lecture scare model. Let's come in and let's show somebody who's really blown their brains out and that'll teach them never to use drugs that's the fundamental model of education we're looking at we're not really saying to ourselves well kids are likely to be exposed to these things let's present people who have had success in life and possibly dealing with substances just starting with their own parents who may or are more likely than not to be good social drinkers and let's work from that framework in trying to uh, to educate them i extend that to treatment too in the united states if you're an 18 i have a chapter on treatment if you're an 18 year old or 16 year old or 13 year old and you get caught publicly drunk or driving drunk you're going to be sent to a 12-step program and you're going to get there, and there's going to be a bunch of 40- and 50-year-olds there. And if you have your wits about you, and I describe one girl like this, you're going to say, you know, I don't think I'm an alcoholic. I mean, okay, I made a mistake here, and this is my punishment. And what do you think they're going to say to her in that room? Well, abstain, uh, walk away. And what are they going to say when she says, I'm not an alcoholic? Well, you're wrong. You, you're predisposed. You're in denial, and, uh, you know, the group leader that I, in the case, one of the cases I talked about said, I was just like you when I have a blog right now. My latest blog at uh, net is about a 20-year-old woman who got a DUI, who was sent to a treatment center in an AA program, and she says, you know, I, it so happened she wasn't sentenced until six months after the DUI and she never had a drink in that six months and when she showed up at AA they said you're an alcoholic and she said you know I'm not I haven't had a drink in six months and I never really was an alcoholic I have a DUI and the guy started calling her a bitch and when they have a new person come in they point to her as an example of somebody in denial and you know she's only a 20 year old girl it really has a really negative impact that makes her really depressed. This is supposed to be therapeutic for her. And she's sentenced to that program for a year. She's been in there for six months. She's got another six months to go. And that's our concept of how to deal with a young person who's had a problem, is to expose them to other people who've had worse problems and to let them berate her if she doesn't feel that she's one of them. 
Right, and and perhaps uh, develop better contacts for getting other substances. You never know. Um, we had a caller uh, ask a question here that they're asking about dysfunctional families and um, perhaps uh, with addicted members and their influence. Uh, you you talk about that within the book. That I do. I have a chapter on that. I. Uh... You can break the cycle of substance abuse from parent to child. It, it, it helps to have one intact parent. I mean, if you're in a family, certainly if your parents before you have had substance abuse problems, there's no need for you to pass them along. Certainly if you've mastered moderate drinking yourself and avoided drug abuse. But even if you just have a good, comfortable home life, where you feel that you can inculcate positive values, where you can make your children feel secure, the odds are you're going to overcome that legacy. And in that, I'm going against the kind of genetic inheritance concept. Um, if you look around you and you asked everybody you knew if any of them had parents who abuse substances or grandparents, you'll find myriads of people who've had that experience but have themselves evolved because their lives have turned out positively into positive caretaking people whose own children aren't going to have those problems it's done all the time it can be done all the time you should have confidence that you can do it and the same fundamentals of creating a stable home of having uh, positive interactions with your kids of inculcating positive values to your kids of making them feel that they belong in the world and they can make the world work for them are the keys to overcoming the likelihood of being addicted, whether or not you or your spouse or your parents have themselves had some substance problems. Well, I, I want to express a little mea culpa here. I uh, quit drinking myself about 22 years ago. My father was proclaimed to be an alcoholic, and I've passed on that warning, if you will, to my boys. And, and I, how old are your boys? I, well, they're now uh, 20, well, 35, 23, and 24. And do all of them... All of them don't drink at all. Well, one of them hardly drinks. He's starting to learn, I think. Uh, one of them is... Uh, How old is that one? He's the 24-year-old. And, and Waited to be 24 till he started to drink. So my news on that is that's amazing. Uh, it sounds like he should have learned a little bit earlier because it's tricky to learn at the age of 24, but... It sounds like you feel he is ma managing to be a social drinker. Is that your sense of it? I think so. Uh, and then the the youngest is is tapering off. He he kind of was a wild child for a while. But I feel like I laid that. Uh... Did a crappy job, buddy. <laughs> well, and I, I, I agree. Father in, I have a father in the book who felt he had now he was alcoholic and he felt it came down through his family. And he told his three kids never to drink. And, of course, that never happened. And, um, you know, what, both two of his older kids had drinking problems. One calmed down, like you were saying, and one quit on his own. Um, and the youngest one hadn't started to drink at all. And the older two were the most worried about that one. You can't plug into your kid's head. Buddy, if it's a boy. Right. You're about to become an alcoholic if you ever drink. That just doesn't work because, as you've described, it doesn't actually prevent them from drinking. It may make them incredibly frightened and actually more likely in a self-fulfilling prophecy kind of a way to 
develop a drinking problem, and it doesn't give them the means and the ammunition to learn how to deal with that experience. By the way, you know, the most famous temperance lecture in the United States, I write about this in my book, uh, I'll give this a quiz question. Who was the most famous temperance lecturer in the United States? Well, I read the book, sir, so, and we got no other guessers, but it was Billy Sunday, right? Yeah, he went around the country before Prohibition talking about the evils of alcohol. Here's the funny thing. Billy Sunday was a professional baseball player, believe it or not. He was a moderate drinker, and when he was a baseball player, to be a moderate drinker, they would put that on your baseball card. You know what I mean? Right. That baseball players were notorious drunks. He had two sons. Both of them became alcoholics. Can you beat that? Here was a guy who was actually a moderate drinker. He went temperance. That's the way they used to describe it. Lectured around the country around against alcohol and managed to have two alcoholic sons. Ain't that ironic? He was able to deal with something, and then by developing the temperance philosophy in his own life, he blew it with his own kids. Well, it's uh, all too common, I would think, that uh, it's the rebellion of the preacher's daughter, if you would. Yeah. Uh, yes, sir. Danger. I, I want to uh, ask you, I mean, I don't know if you know anybody locally, but doing these radio shows, and I bump into people maybe a couple of dozen times a year who ask me in regards to their son or daughter, got in a little trouble, doing a little drugs, a little too much alcohol, and they ask me for a, a treatment provider. And I'll, I'll be honest with you, sir, other than you and maybe a couple of others, I don't trust most anyone in authority who can't look at this drug war with a more open eye and discuss it more honestly, and I have no one to recommend to them. Uh, your, your thoughts on that, sir? Well, they could call... I mean, I'm Stan Peel. They could try and do coaching with me. I do coaching around the country. I've actually... Where are you in... Are you in Texas? I am in Houston, sir. I actually, at one point, had three clients at the same time from Austin, Texas. I don't know what that says about Austin, but... Uh, uh, if they're forward-thinking, intelligent people. Um, exactly. They, might they were all young women, actually, you know, in their 20s, who, you know, consulted with me around kind of alcohol issues. I I also know somebody in the psychology department at the University of Texas named Kim Fromm. Although she's not a therapist, she's a researcher. I don't know if she would have recommendations. But I guess I, I do have a... Uh, in, in Addiction Proof Your Child, I do have a... Uh, appendix where I say, how do you get a good therapist for your kid? And I talk about, you know, you have a right to interview a therapist, and the first thing I say is, they re really, a 12-step program is inappropriate for an adolescent, somebody who's probably a recovering alcoholic themselves, who says, well, here's the answer, never drink or take another drug, let's say you're talking to a 15-year-old or a 17-year-old. And you'll be set for the rest of your life. That's never going to happen, as we saw, for example, in the case of Lindsay Lohan. She lasted about six days. <laughs> Same with Britney Spears. The third thing I say is to ask them what kind of therapy they practice. Do they know me, Stanton Peel? Do they know Bill Miller and motivational interviewing? Do they know Alan Marlott? These are some other figures who take a reasonable, psychological, non-disease approach to working with kids and just talk with them and say, uh, you know, I don't think it's productive to tell my son or daughter at the age of 15 or 17 that they have a lifetime disease. Can you tell me how you plan on working with them 
so as to help them lead a more productive and positive life and to enhance their motivation and their ability to do so. And hope that if they can't give you a straightforward answer about how they're going to do that, dial up somebody else. Well, I, I want to once again stress to the listeners, this is a wonderful book. Uh, I, I've studied this. I've read uh, dozens of books in this regards. As I said, I realized from reading this, I did make a mistake in the way I presented that history of alcoholism to my children, how it uh, kind of sets them up for, a, you know... Uh, future fall if you will and uh, the book again is addiction proof your child it's by dr stanton peel and i i highly recommend it uh, dr peel you know uh, you have in this uh, uh chapter policies for a non-addicted america you have uh man you really got through that book that's the uh, last chapter way to go <laughs> Well, thank you, sir. And, and, and you're talking about how to prepare people, to, uh, your young people, to make their own decisions, how to make safety the goal of any drug and alcohol policy for these young people. Well, let me let's stop. Those are two big topics. One way that you might think, and a lot of parents think, you know, I've got a good idea, a good plan for making sure my child doesn't become addicted. I'm going to be on them their whole lives until they grow up. That doesn't actually work for many reasons. Uh, one reason is you're going to kind of get out of your house somewhere along the line when they're 13, when they're 16. They might even go to college when they're 18 or 19 and be completely on their own. They better have had some practice at being independent and making decisions on their own, on trying things on, maybe even dealing with failure. And that's a persistent mistake we make in the United States. They call clinical diagnosis of alcoholism, they don't really have that anymore. It's either alcohol or drug dependence. It's not going too far to say if you have an extremely dependent child, one who's not well-versed at being able to deal with the world and make decisions on their own, you're setting them up for some kind of a dependence. So that's, uh, that's my first recommendation. I also have a chapter on you want to prevent your child from being harmed. Let me give you a I went to a parent drug night in a town near here, and uh, they had five different people on stage, and they all lectured about how many kids were taking drugs and drinking. It was one scare story after another. Afterwards, I talked to the school drug counselor, and I said, you know, nobody talked about any way of making sure that the kids had fewer problems, given that you said they drank or took drugs already. That's all you talked about. And she said to me, well, I told my children if they ever become incapacitated or have been drinking, they must call me up and I'll come and pick them up. And I said, you do that for your own family and you're the school substance abuse counselor, but you didn't think it was appropriate to bring that up in parent drug awareness and alcohol awareness night? The thing that you think is most valuable for yourself? And she said, oh, you can never get away with doing that. So that's a perfect example. By ignoring the reality of the world that we face, we actually make it impossible to take the kinds of precautions that we need to take to make sure that our children don't really harm themselves. Because a certain number of kids, quite a large number, more than half, are already going to have been drunk in high school. Uh, you miss the boat if you're saying, okay, that's our plan, without having any kind of backup to make sure that they know that they can count on you to make sure that they don't hurt themselves. Well, that, that's the answer, sir, is uh, 
education, truthfulness, openness. Uh, and I, w once again, I, I, I highly recommend this book, Addiction Proof Your Child, the author, Dr. Stanton Peel. Uh, your website is www.peel, that's P-E-E-L-E dot -E -E net. Is that right, sir? Yes. It, it is. Dr. Peel, uh, thank you so much for joining us here on Cultural Baggage. We, we very much appreciate your writing. It's always a pleasure. Uh, every couple of years when I write a new book, I'll be sure to come back on your show. All right, so thank I you. I'd love very... to be talking down in Texas. You bet. You bet. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. He needs help. Help from a drug. That help is here. Meet Napian. Napien activates your brain's napping centers and attacks your body's awakenings. And unlike Sleepia, it won't cause foot fattening or elbow stink. Okay, Napien, do your stuff. The Numbers Game. The Federal Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration recently released the 2006 National Survey on Drug Use and Health, or NISDA. NISDA is the survey formerly known as the Household Survey. I was looking over the data and a few things leapt out at me. Fair warning, there are a lot of numbers coming up. According to the NISDA, in 2006, a total of 111,774,000 Americans aged 12 and over had tried an illegal drug in their lifetimes. That's 311,000 fewer than the 2005 estimate of 100 in percentages, that's a drop from 46.1% to 45.4%. There were 2,789,000 first-time users of any illegal drug in 2006. That's 1.1% of the entire population. And it's why that lifetime use figure just doesn't add up. When we add the number of lifetime users in 2005 to the number of first-time users in 2006, we get 114,874,000. That's 3.1 million more than the number of people who admitted in 2006 that they had ever used the drug in their lifetime. Ah, I know what you're thinking. People die each year. Maybe that's where they went. Actually, no, it's not. Death figures for 2006 are not yet available, but the CDC does report that there were a total of between 2.4 and 2.5 million deaths in the U.S. annually in the years 2001, 2002, and 2003. The most recent data is for 2003. More than a quarter of these annual deaths are among people 85 years of age and older, an age group which currently has a very low incidence of drug use. In fact, only 10.9% of Americans over the age of 65 have ever used an illicit drug. Obviously, a couple of million drug users didn't die or somehow vanish. They're hiding because they're scared of being honest with their government. The bottom line, official government statistics on drug use are horribly inaccurate and have probably become even more so over the past few years. Most of us are aware of this. Even Prohibition supporters admit it's true. Some would argue, though, that the point is so obvious that it's irrelevant. Yet drug warriors continue to trot out this garbage data year in and year out to argue that if we just pump a few billion more dollars into that rat hole, we'll win. It's a farce, but it wastes real human lives and real money. It's time to end it. For the Drug Truth Network, this is Doug McVeigh, editor of DrugWarFacts.org. The following is a Drug Truth Network editorial. Drug war is not a soundbite issue. Truthfully, it's not even about drugs. The drug war is the culmination of the great desire of more than a million criminals worldwide to fleece the ignorant, bleeding masses with superstition, false science, and moral posturing that parallels the Islamic fatwa. Fear runs the drug war, and it sways public opinion enough to continue its reach 
towards eternity. Are we to forever bow down to the drug lords and their lackeys in government, science, and the media? It's really up to you, isn't it? It is indeed up to you, my friends. It's time for you to get on board to help change this madness. Uh, if you get the chance, tune into this week's Century of Lies program. Features interviews with uh, Paul Armentano of the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws, Jack Cole and Russ Jones of Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, and Alexis Baden-Mayer of Vote Hemp, plus the Poppygate Report. want to thank Doug McVeigh for his fine report. I want to thank uh, Dr. Stanton Peel for visiting us here on Cultural Baggage, his new book, Addiction proof your child you are the answer my friend please visit our website drugtruth.net learn what you can do and as always i remind you that because of drug prohibition you don't know what's in that bag please be careful to the drug truth network listeners around the world on behalf of engineer philip guffey this is dean becker for cultural baggage and the unvarnished truth the show produced at the Pacifica Studios of KPFT, Houston. Jap dancing on the edge of the <laughs>